This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, October 7th. The Profits Over People edition. That's not our slogan, but I decided to throw it in there anyway. I'm Emily Bazelon it's actually of the no New York Times slogan. Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't apply to us, is what I meant. I thought about reversing it. We could also call it the People Over Profits edition. In any case, <laughs> I'll let our producer sort that out. I'm Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale Law School. I am here with John Dickerson of CBS News. Hey, John. Hello. And Mary Harris, who is the host of What Next, Slate's daily news podcast. Hey, Mary, we're so glad you're joining us. I am so happy to be here. Hey, everyone. Hey. David is on vacation, and I believe we'll be back next week. So we're very glad that Mary is here to fill his shoes, so to speak. Okay, so... (laughs) No one can fill his shoes. (laughs) You can fill different shoes. So on this week's show, we are going to start with the Senate. The Senate seems to be close to a deal on saving the country from defaulting on its debt, but only until December. Then we get to do this again. What is going on and how does it tie into the Democrats' own internal negotiations over their budget? Our second topic is Facebook. Facebook had what is called a bad week. Um, The outage of all of its services around the world uh, for several hours one day this week is like the least of it. The real trouble for Facebook came from a whistleblower, Frances Haugen, who testified before the Senate. Will her testimony change anything? Is Congress ready to actually step in and talk about regulating social media platforms? And our third topic is a kind of catch-up about the prosecutions from the January 6th riots and violence. Judges in D.C. have been criticizing prosecutors for their decisions in some of the cases involving the January 6th rioters in the Capitol. We'll catch up on those cases and also talk about what we're still learning nine months later about why the assault in the Capitol happened in the first place. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, John and I are going to interview Mary about what it is like to host a daily podcast and how she pulls that off. John, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you. We've had a lot of brinksmanship over the debt ceiling in the last few weeks. This is, I think, maybe my least favorite topic because it just seems like a problem we should solve in the longer run and then never have to talk about again. But that's not what it looks like is going to happen. What looks like it's going to happen is that The Republicans are going to allow the Democrats to squeak through like a two-month extension, and then this is going to all come back around. Can you explain what's going on? Do you feel any more heartened than I do by these developments? No, because debt limit fights, and which are the cousin of um, government spending fights, are basically a huge amount of wasted work to do the basic job of governing. So it's like it's a massive fight just to get out the door. So there were four fights that piled up at the same time, one on government spending, one on debt, one on the Build Back Better agenda, and one on infrastructure. 
Two of those are substantive, and you can have fights about whether the spending is good or bad and tax, raising taxes, lowering taxes, and the rest of it. And that at least is productive conversation towards aligning power towards solving problems. These are totally stupid, why didn't we turn left at Smith Street fights that are that are dumb, counterproductive, and then in this particular case on the on the debt ceiling, are totally about politics. In other words, there's no like there's no kernel at the center of it. So there could be a kernel if Republicans had maintained their views about the debt and deficit under a Republican president, you could argue that their position on lifting the debt ceiling had some kernel at the center of it where it was a demonstration of their fiscal their their fiscal responsibility and their concern about inflation and those kinds of things. But they demonstrated none of that concern over the last four years. And that's what the money, the debt, the debt limit is. It's basically essentially what raising the debt limit is about, which is uh, essentially dealing with what you've spent before. So there's no ideological principle at the center of it. Now, the last thing you say is, you know, but part of part of the way you enact your agenda is gain power and Republicans want to regain power. And this is a way they think they can do it. I'm not sure the politics at the center of it. We can talk about that later. But this is pure power play to make Democrats eat the fact that they've got to raise the debt limit and hopefully use it again in 2020, uh, you know, when the elections roll around next year. Mary, is this sort of lengthy complication the point? In other words, are the Republicans just trying to slow down the Democratic agenda and basically play out the clock? Yes. I mean, (laughs) yes. And you know that because of what Mitch McConnell has said about what he's doing here. He's said, I don't have any requests or demands for us to accede here and let Democrats raise the debt ceiling. I don't have anything like that. I just think Democrats should go it alone and pass this, which puts Democrats in a stress position. There's like one way they can do it. They can do it with reconciliation. We've heard a lot about reconciliation in the last year. It's basically a budget bill, but it's a very complicated budget process where you can take up a lot of floor time. There's a voterama. Basically, it's uncomfortable for Democrats. So Mitch McConnell's basically said, I want to make your life uncomfortable, even though I realize that unless we raise the debt ceiling, we're in real trouble. We're not going to be able to pay Social Security benefits. We're going to have this crisis. And by the way, the Fed is already doing extraordinary measures now to try to prevent that sort of thing from happening. I love that, John, you called it dumb. Our colleague Jim Newell, I I wrote this down because the way he put it was so beautiful. He said, this is the dumbest ever standoff. It's actually one of the dumbest situations in which any random 100 people could have put themselves. And I just can't say it better, which is everyone agrees what has to be done. Debt ceiling has to be raised. Only one party is basically saying no. And this is paying bills that we accrued during Donald Trump's administration. So it's just dumb, dumb, dumb. So let's talk about the politics. Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia said this week, we're not doing the debt ceiling raise on reconciliation. That's not the only option, and we're going to get it done. Is he just kind of faking it till you make it? And is part of what is going on with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell the possibility that someone on his right could stop everything, um, and he's trying to make sure that he doesn't get outflanked on the right? Well, I don't know if he's worried about getting uh, outflanked. I think there is some concern 
So there's reporting Thursday morning that McConnell, quote unquote, blinked and are, are going to allow Democrats essentially perhaps to do this without having to go through reconciliation, which had a lot of. So reconciliation would mean not only that that Democrats would have to eat the the political downside to being the ones who initiated the debt, uh, the debt limit increase. But then they also had to put a number on it, which, again, I'm not sure any of this is really going to matter when it comes time for the election or even in the interim period. But anyway, they'd have to eat it and they'd have to spend a lot of time going through the procedural uh, hurdle jumping, which just creates more numbers of days in which they have to eat it. In other words, they can't kind of do it in the dead of night. It's likely that that with a president who this week reached his lowest numbers um, at 38 percent in the Quinnipiac poll of his presidency, that Biden's standing and COVID-19 and crisis to be named later are going to have more influence over the election than all of this madness, in part because the debt limit's been raised 100 times. And I think it's become the background noise to our world. So I'm curious about the politics at the at the base of this and whether it whether it really matters that the Democrats have to eat this thing. But nevertheless, the Democrats didn't want to go through that. And there's some reporting that McConnell was worried that Democrats might actually tinker with the filibuster to get around his opposition. Uh, Given that Manchin and Sinema said they weren't going to tinker with the filibuster on this, uh, that seems hard to believe. But there's all this reporting that says that. The other alternative is that some Republican senators were worried that that the Republican position which is we're not going to help you at all, even though Democrats helped Donald Trump or helped Republicans when Trump was president raise the debt limit, that there was some concern among Republicans that they would look like they were toying around with the full faith and credit of the United States simply for political reasons, which, again, sometimes you do things for political reasons to get the power to go do the other stuff you want to do. But if you look too overtly political, maybe they were worried that it might somehow blow back on them. There's some suggestion that may, be, that may be the case, and that's why McConnell offered this deal to Democrats. Remember, again, everybody, we're talking about the you, this thing way off to the side, which has nothing to do with what we were talking about last week, which is the Democratic agenda, which, uh, which we'll get to. But this is just like this enervating side irritation. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont said around here, two months is a lifetime and seemed really happy to have the two months. And I thought, what? Because one doesn't usually think of Bernie Sanders as like the man of um, Pollyannish, overly optimistic views. And then I thought, well, maybe this is just all about the timeline of the Democratic budget, and this will allow them to go back to actually passing those bills and then deal with the debt ceiling. John is nodding at me, which is very gratifying. (laughs) I think you're exactly right. Good. So speaking of those uh, looming budget discussions, Mary, where do you think the Democrats are in terms of reaching agreement on their plans? We're now hearing, I think, that the reconciliation bill would be more in the neighborhood of two-ish trillion as opposed to three and a half trillion, if I understand correctly. Um, and then is that on top of the exi- the other infra- bipartisan infrastructure bill? Now John is yeah, that, making a face that makes me no, think no, I'm wrong. No, no, that is no face. No, no, that is no oh, good. face. I was just, <laughs> I was just uh, itching my nose by other methods. This is the downfall okay. of Zoom, <laughs> is that I don't want you to take any movements over here except vigorous nodding and agreement as anything other uh, than my assent to your position. Okay, sorry. Phew. Go ahead, Mary. Okay, good. Mary, continue on. I mean, so... Here was my favorite take on all of this budget back and forth last week, which is, you know, last week, 
sort of like this week, like it felt like crisis. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? There has to be a vote on this stuff. There's not going to be a vote. Drama, drama, drama. I think it was Lisa Desjardins from NewsHour. She tweeted out, she's like, this is when the real negotiations begin. And I think that's right, which is Democrats kind of had to reach this crisis level of you know, here's what the Bernie Sanders of the world want. Here's what the Joe Manchins of the world will give them and really have that come to a head before they could actually negotiate because they had been proceeding over the summer with just procedural thing after procedural thing, just move along, keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving, but weren't really talking about like setting a number and <laughs> weren't really talking about like all together. They weren't really talking about exactly what was going to get through and what their priorities were. And they needed to crash in order to get to a point where they would have those conversations. That's what happened last week. And now, yes, they have the time to have those conversations. And and you heard a lot of numbers being floated around. I think Last week, there was Nancy Pelosi saying $2.1 trillion when Joe Manchin was saying, you know, $1.5 trillion was his ceiling. So, you know, that's that's where we are right now. We're in the negotiation phase. Can I throw out two numbers for you both and say what you think? And neither of them really have anything to do with the top line numbers for this legislation, but they are important for this reason. During the 15 months of COVID-19, according to one study, more than 120,000 children lost a parent or grandparent who was the primary provider of financial support. Why does that matter? Because what's happened in the debate over how much the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better package will cost is that this was originally supposed to be a set of proposals that would address the underlying challenges that were laid bare by COVID-19. And the dependence in certain family structures. Um, I mean, there's the tragedy, of course, of the 120,000 children, but there's also the family structures where the difference between a catastrophic life and one with some access to the American dream hangs by these tiny threads, if that metaphor isn't completely ruined. And so that in a number of different ways, this legislation was supposed to get at that. And one of the things that's happened in the course of whether it's 3.5 or 1.5 or 2.2 is that all that stuff is getting lost. And as Mary's suggesting, now that this comes back to the that this gets to the details, we will hopefully have hopefully not because of a preferred outcome, but hopefully because it's more important to have debates about actual things instead of abstract numbers. We'll have a debate about whether it's important to have universal pre-K, the the per child tax credit in an ongoing basis rather than just a limited period of time, family medical leave, child and infant care, all these things that were supposed to ameliorate the inequalities exposed by COVID-19. And the other number I'll offer is that rich countries, there's a piece in the Times uh, Wednesday night, Thursday, that rich countries contribute an average of $14,000 a year to a toddler's care compared to just $500 in the United States. If you look at the graph of spending of other countries relative to the United wow. States, there is the, there are these long bars that other countries contribute to the care of kids. And we know, of course, that the earlier you care for kids, the better chances that they will have uh, de- fully develop and have more productive lives. And then the amount that the U.S., by comparison, spends with respect to those long bars of the other countries is this tiny thing that if you get the paper subscription in the New York Times, it comes with an actual microscope. So you can put the paper in it and look at how little the U.S. spends relative to other countries. And that's what's going to now get debated hotly as the Democrats try to figure out, okay, 
do we spend a little bit on all these things or do we spend a lot on the child tax credit so it can be permanent, but then that drops out, uh, you know, family medical leave or, and this all will come back to basically what Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema support or don't support, but at least that is, again, back to Mary's original point, is at least is better than where we were before when this was all happening in an abstraction. Now the question is, do you want to spend this money on this specific thing or on this other specific thing? Yeah, and having a number is kind of useful. $1.5 trillion is a lot less than a lot of the more progressive folks wanted to spend, but it's still a lot of money. And so it allows you to begin having these conversations that are really important. Like you look at family and medical leave, and you can put through full family and medical leave, or you could talk about leave that was just for parental leave. And that makes it much less expensive. And so then you're having a real conversation about what do we value? What is going in here? What did we discover through this pandemic, just like John was saying, that we want to address? It's at least useful to begin having those conversations about priorities. That's fine. I worry about doing these kinds of negotiations in a rush because then is it really thought through all the implications of taking something out or leaving something in? You know, we're still talking about spending huge amounts of money, and I would like to think that the staffers and the policy people in Washington who have focused so much on this over months would really be able to dig in and make the most, like, pragmatic decisions. And whenever you do things like this in a rush, it gets very hard to do that. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Our second topic. So Frances Haugen, who was a product manager at Facebook until she became a whistleblower, has given lots of documents both to the Senate and to the Wall Street Journal. What we're doing today is picking up the story from her Senate testimony, which reflected a lot of what we already knew from the Wall Street Journal stories called the Facebook Files. The sort of overarching points that Haugen is making are familiar to our listeners, because I think we've been talking about these tensions and problems and really 
bad trade-offs, I would argue, that Facebook um, and other social media platforms have been making. I think we've been talking about this in some ways for years. But Haugen did an incredibly clear job of explaining how this all works. And so she started out by saying to the Senate, I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, weaken our democracy, and much more. And then here's her explanation of how this works. She says, Facebook makes more money when you consume more content. People enjoy engaging with things that elicit an emotional reaction. And the more anger that they get exposed to, the more they interact and the more they consume. This is the dilemma of Facebook's algorithms that because they are always seeking to boost engagement, keep you on the site longer, they are serving you up this kind of hot content that riles you up or just upsets you or, you know, for teenagers on Instagram who might ask for a post about food or dieting, suddenly you're looking at like stuff about extreme dieting and eating disorders. Mary, do you think that Haugen's testimony is going to move Congress toward actually taking action? And do you think that we're there? I mean, we've hoped, I think, that Facebook was going to address a lot of these issues themselves, that the social media platforms had enough of an incentive to self-regulate that the government wouldn't have to step in. Do you think we sort of passed that point, And do you think Congress is ready to do something? So I think it's clear that Facebook is not going to regulate itself. Like that's that's the one thing that is crystal clear from this testimony above all else. The other thing that was interesting about it is that you really saw people on both sides of the aisle focus in a different way on questions of Facebook and how it's influencing our democracy. And they kind of did it through this prism, like the I think the title of the hearing was about children's welfare. Yes. They did it through a prism of kids, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> like the one thing they can all agree on is like, let's be nice to kids. Um, even though what Francis Haugen was saying was much more broadly applicable. I think one of the Wall Street Journal articles, it was like, you know, Facebook tried to get more engagement. It just made people more angry. That's not necessarily just about kids. That's about everyone. It's right? about vaccines. It's about elections. It's about ethnic violence in Myanmar. Exactly. So it was a good first step. But I'm kind of curious to see what they do from here because there's not there's no FDA for Facebook. You know, well, the way like, right. people talked about it is a big tobacco moment. But there is there isn't a mechanism right now that exists the same way that there did for tobacco. So I, I, that's that's what's on my mind. Right. I mean, Congress could create a new agency that considers consumer uh, interests and values in the same way that, you know, we have the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau or consumer bureaus for other products. It could also ask the Federal Trade Commission or the Federal Communications Commission to step in and play more of a role. So there are regulatory levers to pull here. I mean, John, do you think that – so it seemed like the senators at the center of this, Senator Blackburn from Tennessee and one of my senators, Richard Blumenthal in Connecticut, and a bunch of other people, they seemed to really get what was at stake here in a way that was like a relief. It was nice to see our government officials like talk fluidly about algorithms and about this idea that, you know, Facebook has this engagement-seeking way of promoting content. They really seemed to get it. And yes, they focused on kids, but they also were pretty clear about the implications for things like vaccine disinformation and election-related misinformation. So if they grasp all of that, is that enough to give them the will to act? Well, it depends, because 
there, the push and pull is that partially what has dominated, the reason we find this refreshing is that it feels like the lawmakers are focusing on the the algorithm the algorithm is the thing and the, and and the fact that lawmakers are focused on the on the algorithms is useful because they used to be and I'm borrowing here from Charlie Warzel's writing in um Galaxy Brain but that before there's a lot of political conversation about is Facebook destroying our elections are they helping conservatives hurting conservatives it gets wrapped up in politics and the beauty of the algorithm is the algorithm doesn't care about your damn politics it just cares about what keeps you seething and feeding and connected which by the way is weird that this is such a revelation i'm glad it's a revelation but i remember back in like i mean six seven years ago the youtube um there's a guy named guillaume shallow i think that's the name chalet i don't know who basically came out and said you know what youtube does is it finds out what you like and then keeps feeding you more of that. And what we found is that basically if you keep watching, you keep getting more and more extreme because like somebody who wears cologne, um, you put on a little and it's fine and then you get anesthetized to it. And at the end, you're just dumping the whole bottle over your head because you, your nose doesn't remember how powerful what you're smelling is and you keep needing more powerful smell. And that's what was happening. So that's been happening for a while. It's just that... well. Isn't what is special here that she has the receipts, right? And so she's able to say, like, Facebook knew all this and made a lot of choices despite its research, and that's why this is like big tobacco. Totally. They knew they were causing cancer. They didn't give a shit. Totally, because Facebook's position has been, oh, my gosh, we created this beautiful, wonderful world where everybody wants to know about their, you know, sister's children. And, oh, this terrible thing happened. The Russians came in and used it. Like, they were the the, um, innocent bystanders of this wonderful world they'd created. In this case, the big difference is they knew exactly what they were doing, and they designed it so that it was ever more powerful at doing this bad thing. But I guess my point is that it's very seductive to go out and raise money by saying Facebook is blocking conservatives. Even if you look at the top 10 posts on Facebook, they're almost entirely conservative or conservative leaning. But it's more the structure of politics incentivizes insane things that don't make any sense to raise money. And those incentives are all still there. And so while there was acknowledgement that the algorithm is the thing, and the algorithm is dangerous and doesn't care about politics, it just cares about its being voracious. That's really important. But to your original question, Emily, there are so many incentives to keep people from focusing on the algorithm uh, that that I worry. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is the algorithm ties back to speech, right? Because if the algorithm turns out to be promoting hot content and conservatives are better at generating that content, and that's why they're dominating the top 10 list of what's liked and shared. Well, actually, if you change the algorithm, then they could lose out in some way. And, you know... I also have to say that I'm all for thinking about various possibilities. I think one really important thing to start with is just research. It was really important to have these documents leak, but without Haugen, we wouldn't know what they said. And one of the things that's been deeply frustrating to academics around the world has been how difficult it is to get any kind of internal data from Facebook. Nate Persley, who's been a guest on this show sometimes before and is a law professor at Stanford, has worked for years to try to get Facebook to provide this kind of data. They finally coughed some of it up. It was filled with errors. So researchers spent hundreds of hours working on it. And Nate wrote a piece from The Washington Post this week explaining why he'd resigned from this project because he's just kind of given up hope in the sort of softer, like, 
work with Facebook privately idea, and he is now calling on the Federal Trade Commission to to take this rule. And his point is, we need to understand what's happening in this company. That's the starting place. And that is certainly something the government could get moving, even if you are unsure about the kind of First Amendment implications of doing something like directly regulating the algorithms. And there are a lot more documents that these lawmakers have. It'll be really interesting to see in the coming weeks and months what comes out because that will be a choice, right? It'll be a choice like what we think is important for you to see and what we think we are able to share. Totally good point. Do either of you think that um, readers and users of Facebook might have a moment of pause and think, you know, this isn't a reflection of what's happening in the lives of my friends and families, despite the fact that that Facebook says that's why we use it. In fact, I'm being fed a highly curated experience, and it's curated to push the worst buttons of me. And maybe that's not so great to be, you know, fooled like that and led around like that. And maybe I don't want to be a part of that. Or do people think, you know, I really enjoy it. And if it's not so true, who cares? Because it presses these buttons, and I like having these buttons pressed. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, to oversimplify, that people actually like having the buttons pressed. It's that they find it addictive. And this is, again, where the cigarette smoking analogy comes in. Like, if people start to think of, you know, Facebook and Instagram as, like, giving your kids cigarettes, maybe that will give them pause. Well, and I guess I think here's where the algorithm comes in. Like, I think a lot, and I was thinking a lot this week, I, my first one of my first jobs out of college, I was a network news producer, and one of the first pieces I produced, which must have been like two thousand two, two thousand three, it was about pro anorexia websites, which was you know the idea that you had a blog where you talked about your dieting tips, and it was influencing girls and promoting anorexia in girls. This has been happening for a long time. What makes Facebook different is the supercharging of that, making it so that if you're interested in diets, if you're a teenage girl, that is what you're seeing all the time. And so I think the more – it takes a long time for, I think, people to realize that, to kind of click in. And you have to hear it again and again. And that's what was so valuable about this week, which is just the overwhelming evidence and just the way you couldn't avoid it. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Then it was on 60 Minutes. Then it was in Washington. And it was just it was undeniable in a way that it hadn't been before. Yeah. And I mean, just to pick up on your point, the curated nature of Instagram, which is all about idealized physical appearance, just plays into this so much. And so it seemed wholly unsurprising that, you know, girls in particular report that they feel worse about themselves or are more prone to eating disorders and that it was so easy for the press to run out and find parents and teenagers who would testify to all of this. I mean, I think for me, since I originally started reporting on Facebook like a dozen years ago for my book about bullying, there is something really interesting about how the circle has come back around to the harm to kids, even though at this point we also know that democracy and violence and, uh, you know, medical misinformation is floating around and is at stake. And one of those receipts that that has now been made brought to light is an internal Facebook document that said our platform enables all three stages of human exploitation, recruitment, facilitation, and exploitation. In other yes. words, so it's not just it's Yikes. not just the children body image part, but it's the most uh, most awful part of that category of 
of issues. And also, by the way, back to your original question, Emily, about whether Congress is going to do anything, there is one thing that does motivate lawmakers, which is being lied to. And I think there's evidence that Zuckerberg misled Congress when he testified about Facebook and Instagram's effects on teens and mental health, because there are now these internal documents about body image issues that they knew about. And when he was asked about it, he uh, was not candid. And so that's going to be a big problem for him and something that that um, Congress might continue to press on because they don't like to be lied to. And I think that applies to the press as well. I mean, I have to say I feel so lied to. Like all the times I've written about Facebook and they fought with me about saying something so much less dramatic and controversial than what turns out to be true that they knew all along. It's really galling. One more thing I want to say, getting back to what you originally asked about, like, is Congress ready to act, is that I thought it was really interesting to look at what Haugen said about what she thought could be done, because she didn't go all the way. Like, she talked about maybe putting an age limit on who can participate in Facebook, but she didn't want Facebook to be broken up. And so I thought that was interesting just because if... If these folks in Washington are taking advice from her, like she was kind of moderating a little bit what she wanted Washington to do in terms of intervention. And it'll be interesting to me to see how they sort of square that with other folks who've been very clear, like, no, we need to intervene here. This is a monopoly. Like, let's like, let's break this up. So I I just think it'll be interesting to see how they process what she said. Yeah. I mean, she proposed measures that seemed quite inadequate to the problem that she was laying out. It's really common in Silicon Valley to say, oh, no, there's no point in breaking up this near monopoly, you know, even of divesting Facebook from Instagram and WhatsApp, because they have, yeah, they have these problems. At least they're this huge company that can spend tens of millions of dollars on content moderation every year. And if you break them up into all these little companies, they won't have those resources. I just really don't buy it. What competition produces are, first of all, breaking the network effect where everyone feels like they have to be on Instagram or Facebook or WhatsApp, depending on where you live and your age. And second of all, if you have competition, then presumably some of the spaces offer a healthier diet of social media in which they don't have algorithms that do this kind of promotion. And then some people pick those platforms. Nearly nine months have passed since the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. We have had since then more than 600 people arrested across the country who are believed to have joined in the attack. There have been 80 cases resolved through guilty pleas, largely by those who were charged only with misdemeanor offenses. We have about 70 other people of the total who are being locked up pretrial. And we're starting to have some more kind of feedback from judges about how they think the government is prosecuting these cases. Some judges are knocking the government for not being tough enough. And then there was one federal judge, Trevor McFadden, who happens to be a Trump appointee, and he suggested that the Justice Department was being too hard on at least one of the January 6th defendants. Prosecutors had asked Judge McFadden to sentence someone to two months of home confinement, and he chose probation instead, a lesser punishment. So, Mary, what do you make of this? I mean, is this just the kind of variation we're supposed to get from federal judges? Is there something more worrisome going on? I don't I can't tell if it's worrisome. I feel like it seems to me like the DOJ is clearly overwhelmed. There this is massive this case. And so they're just moving through a lot of things 
at once. And that's clearly part of the equation here. Also, the court system is kind of jammed with these folks. So that's one thing. But I just think it's so interesting that we are months out at this point. We keep learning more things and we keep You can see us arguing in public about what happened and what the truth is and what the consequences should be. So, you know, also this week, we saw this interim report from the Senate where they're sort of laying out, here's what led up to January 6th. And they have, they are quoting folks from inside the DOJ talking about, here's what we planned to do to prevent a coup. We're just, we're still learning so much, basically, day by day, even though it has been months and months and weeks and weeks. And you can see the judges in these cases where we're actually having people who are arrested and charged also shaping our truth of what happened that day, where prosecutors are saying, here, let's just wrap them on the wrist. And the judge is saying, no, no, I really think you need to be sending this person to prison. It's just we're writing the record as we go. And that's what I think is so interesting about this. One of the things that strikes me about the interim Senate report, one of one of the revelations in it is that the president's lawyer was, as the president was essentially pressuring DOJ and top-level officials at DOJ were preparing to resign uh, en masse if, if the president pushed them to declare that the, the election was invalid or that there were flaws or that there was something wrong with it, none of which any of them believed by virtue of the fact that there was no evidence for that claim. But as he was pushing and pushing, one of the people who at one of the junctures said that he would resign if the president kept up this effort was the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, as well as uh, his deputy, Patrick Philbin. What strikes me again, the benefit of going back and looking at, at January 6th, the court cases tell us how public rot seeps into the minds of people who are willing to make careful plans to fly to Washington to um, stage a riot to try to overthrow an election. That's one element. But the other is just how close we came along the line to actually having the president get what he wanted, and who stood up when, and why they stood up, and what prohibited them from not caving, and those things that prohibited them from not caving, are any of those still around? I mean, so if you look at the Secretary of State in Georgia, Raffensperger, Brad Raffensperger, um, he is in uh, incredible political peril. In Georgia and other states, the uh, movement is to put people in those offices or create offices that are politically motivated so that those fail-safes won't work next time, so that people won't stand up against the pressure. Learning where the pressure points were, why they held or didn't hold, is one of the really crucial things about the, the Senate report and the investigation into the 6th, because we now learn, for example, with Mike Pence, that he was even closer to actually doing what Donald Trump wanted than perhaps the first lines of reporting suggested. Yeah, I mean, I think what's important actually about the direction you're both moving this discussion in is that it takes it from the people who got sucked in, who are being criminally prosecuted, to whoever was making this happen, you know, whether it was organizing the actual riots or just creating the conditions for them. And I think that's why it's actually been hard for me, honestly, to care that much about how much punishment we have for the people who showed up at the Capitol. And I know lots of other people disagree with me about this, and I'm not suggesting there should be no consequences. I get it. They did something like really wrong that we don't want to have happen again. But to me, it just 
always seems important to keep the focus on why this happened and how they made these decisions to to come to D.C. in this moment and then to do the lawbreaking that they did. Well, and the focus has really started to settle on John Eastman, this attorney who gave Trump a memo basically detailing, here's how you do a coup. And it's the question becomes, what what happens to someone like that? What happens to someone who so clearly wanted something like this to happen, but can also make the argument like I was just casting ideas around? Like, what do you do with someone like that? And we've seen in the last week that a number of lawyers have written and saying, you know, you said, you know, we don't think he should be a lawyer anymore. We think he should be disbarred. And so that's one lever you have. But it's so interesting to contrast that with what's happening in the courts in Washington, where people who were there for the riot are, you know, going to prison, are facing real time. And Eastman is, meanwhile, like, okay, maybe you won't be a lawyer anymore. Well, I mean, Eastman did have to resign from Chapman University, where he'd been the dean of the law school because of this controversy. I actually interviewed him last year, I realized, uh, not about this stuff at all. But when I was working on a piece about um, the Supreme Court, he is a former Clarence Thomas clerk, and I called him in that capacity. I just, like, happened to find that interview last week. And it just goes to show, like, you know, legal academia, it's a broad place, has room for many people in it. Well, also, in certain circles, his speaking fees have undoubtedly just gone up by right. maybe tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, one of the things, one of the, this is, I'm going to go slightly off the beam here a little bit, but when you look at the money that's necessary or what to run for office, and the amount of money candidates have to raise, you see that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who does not have many um, of her most vocal ideas that attach to the reality in which we all spend our time. And nevertheless, she's a huge money hauler for those races. And so that just is a signal of the market that's out there to pay lots of money for these views. And so while he may not be invited... Um, to the Harvard Law School faculty club Sherry Knight, he's going to get big <laughs> money from speeches, you would imagine, for the rest of his career and get some tidy position at some college with a major donor who believes all that he wrote. Let's move along to cocktail chatter. When you are both out this weekend in this nice crisp fall weather, at least that's what we're experiencing here in New Haven, drink in hand, what will you be chattering about, John? We learned from Stephanie Grisham's book that the president, uh, President Trump, uh, his mysterious trip to Walter Reed during his presidency, which caused so much irresponsible speculation that he went to get a colonoscopy, but he was embarrassed about it. And so he didn't want anybody to know. He also did it without anesthesia, uh, which is uh, quite a thing. So gross. Um, (laughs) And it reminded me of the time that Grover Cleveland went and had secret jaw surgery to remove a cancerous tumor and didn't want anybody to know because the the economy was uh, was weak and he worried that it would cause a, a panic. They did the, the surgery on a yacht when he was on his way from uh, D.C. What? up to Cape Cod. On a boat? On a boat. Oh exactly. Exactly. What? <laughs> I mean, come on. It doesn't seem like a good surgical theater. Well, exactly right, Mary. I mean, As the like, waves make the boat bob up and down. <laughs> what? The roller derby was booked that night? I mean, anyway, so um, <laughs> this is a detailed notebook by Matthew uh uh, Algeo, A-L-G-E-O, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's undoubtedly sh- true that I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's called The President is a Sick Man, um, if you want to learn more about this. So anyway, that just 
has always blown my mind. Also, the book apparently says that in doing the surgery, which is on the roof of Cleveland's mouth, the, the surgeons were, again, this is all happening on a boat, were instructed to make sure that they did not mess with the famous walrus mustache that Cleveland had. So you're on a boat... <laughs> And you have to slalom oh, around the, the hair. You have to slalom around the whiskers of the of the prostrate president. Um, anyway, uh, it was it was I think a pretty successful surgery. Um, and no, oh, by the way, let's just say that in um, um, what year are we talking here? In late nineteenth century, like eighteen, I think eighteen nineties. I mean, boats were, you know, a little rough and ready. I mean, it's not like they were running quiet like a, a Prius. I mean, they were, you know, honking, belching fumes. Um, anyway, it's it's extraordinary. Mary, what will you be talking about with the drink? I have a much less obscure <laughs> cocktail chatter. Much less obscure. Um, okay, so I, I will say that I didn't think any piece of media – this week was going to be more like, oh, my God, than the New Yorker article by Gary Steingart talking about his botched circumcision, which I was like, whoa, wow, going there. However, my feed was overtaken this week by this New York Times magazine story, Who is the Bad Art Friend? And I feel like I can't stop talking about it. Like It reminds me, there was the This American Life story a little early in the pandemic where they talked about how we were all starved of gossip and mm. how we needed it. And this is basically gossip. Like, it's it's just looking at someone else's mess. It It is mess. It's a story of these two writers, one of them more successful than the other. The less successful one decides to donate a kidney anonymously and, and establishes a Facebook group where people can kind of follow along in her journey. And then she she realizes that the more successful writer is cribbing her story for the fiction she's writing. And it's about everything that happens after that, which is, I just got to tell you, it is nuts. Like, people are calling the Boston Globe and saying, do you want to know about this plagiarism? People are getting really, really pissed off in group chats and nasty, and it's all there. It's one of these reads that you just can't stop talking about it. It's what I would be talking about because it just touches on so many fears we all have of being that person who's talked about in the group chat, of having something, you know, digital taken from us. It's just, it's all there. All right. Wow. I know what I'm reading this weekend. My chatter is twofold. I'm going to do a little bit of log rolling and then a special chatter for John by special request. So my first chatter is about the awards that the David Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law is giving out. So the Bazelon Center is a really important organization in this country that was renamed for my grandfather in the early 90s and has been advocating on behalf of people with mental health problems for decades. You know, an un underserved population if there ever was one. I have no direct involvement in the Bazelon Center, but a lot of admiration for its work. So on Monday, October 25th, they have an incredible all-star lineup for for an online event that you can register for for free. 
John Legend is going to be presenting their annual social justice award to Brian Stevenson, the amazing death penalty lawyer in Alabama. And Yamish Alcindor, who is the host of Washington Week and the, a White House correspondent at P- PBS NewsHour, is going to be emceeing it. There's also Mandy Harvey, a jazz and pop singer and songwriter providing entertainment. So we'll post the link. Um, go check it out. I think there's a suggested donation, but like I said, you can also just come watch for free. And John specially asked for a chatter about a new ruling in the challenges to the Texas near ban on abortion. So this week, a federal district court judge stopped the law. He said that this law called SB8 is simply unconstitutional and used the strong language, this court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. So this is a ruling in the lawsuit brought by the Department of Justice. The idea was that, okay, the Supreme Court let this law go into effect because it had this supposedly tricky private enforcement mechanism in it, but that the federal government could still argue that Texas was preempting its federal law, meaning the constitutional right to abortion in Roe versus Wade, and also interfering with people who work for the federal government and whose jobs include transporting people to get abortion like people at Job Corps in Texas or the Office of Refugee Resettlement. The big question is what's going to happen next. Texas has already made clear they will appeal this ruling to the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the most conservative appellate courts in the country. So we'll see whether they agree with this judge that this law is unconstitutional and should have to be enjoined, in other words, stop, while the litigation continues. And then after the Fifth Circuit rules, we will hear from the Supreme Court, and it will be really interesting to see if the court treats this suit differently than the previous suit from abortion providers that tried to stop the law before it went into effect. And in the meantime, I mean, at least until we hear from the Fifth Circuit, I think it's unlikely that clinics will resume providing abortions because there's just so much uncertainty and the law provides for retroactive liability. Um, So at least in theory, the clinics could get sued after the fact for abortions they do if the law is eventually upheld. Okay, let's hear listener chatter. This week, we have our chatter from Kyle Ammon. Kyle, I hope I'm saying your name right. Hi. My chatter comes from an article I saw in Markets Insider about a cryptocurrency trading hamster. An anonymous person in Germany has set up a hamster cage so that his hamster, named Mr. Gox, can go into his, quote, office, where he can select a designated cryptocurrency by running on a hamster wheel and then initiate either the buying or selling of a preset volume of that currency by running through one of two little tubes inside the office which, by the way, is decorated with a tiny desk and monitors and a wall placard that reads Gox Capital. It's all quite adorable, and you can watch Mr. Gox stream live on Twitch, but the reason Markets Insider ran an article is because in the time that the hamster has been trading on his initial investment of roughly $390, his gains outperformed both the S&P 500 and the rise in the value of Bitcoin over the same period. So either this is a testament to the power of randomness, or else hamsters have an oracular power over crypto markets similar to the well-documented weather-predicting abilities of groundhogs. Well, the monkeys and their typewriters, the hamsters and their cryptocurrencies. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our research is by Bridget Dunlop. Our managing producer is June Thomas. The director of Slate Audio is Gabe Roth, and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Alicia Montgomery. For John Dickerson and Mary Harris, I'm Emily Bazelon. We'll talk to you next week. 
Hi, Slate Plus. Our Slate Plus this week is driven by our curiosity about Mary's show, What Next, which happens every single day, which sounds to me like a kind of incredible treadmill to be on. Um, Mary. (laughs) I'm the cryptocurrency hamster. Hi. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What do you think the difference is between hosting a podcast every day and, you know, blogging or having a Substack newsletter, the new kind of blogging, or trying to, you know, write a column every day of some kind? Like, I just wonder how the medium informs the, the daily pattern of it. So... Audio is different in that, like, there's this saying that it's the most visual medium because you're trying to suck people into a story and you're describing things to them. And I think that's, like, the real benefit of audio, which is you can slow things down so slow that people really understand them in a way that the words, if you're reading a bunch of articles, can kind of wash over you. So in some ways, like, the the demand is the same. And I think especially with a substack where you're trying to, again, like, extract meaning from things and create connections and help people understand things. But what makes a podcast different is just that you you need to describe things. You need to have plot. You need to have people. You need to have characters. And you can also use experts, right? Yeah. And you can kind of... Um, I feel like every every expert I talk to has been so media trained, like they're so ready to like get to their point that I think what's fun about when we talk to them is like I can slow them down and be like, okay, 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 I know we're going to get to your point, but can you just make the case first? That can actually be really, really fun. It's just it's fun to joke with people like <laughs> like I loved interviewing Jeff Flake. Jeff Jeff Lake is the former senator from Arizona, Republican, who left and people sort of poked fun at him because he stood up to Trump, but like not all the way. What time do you get up? What's your first attack move on the day? And have you gotten better at kind of getting your arms around everything to then make sense of the day? Um, We do one story a day. So that's a little bit simpler. And we're also kind of trying to extract meaning. Like the reason... The reason we're doing the show is fundamentally because I found myself having this problem, which is like I was surrounded by news and I didn't know what a ton of it meant at a certain point. You know, like I get so many push notifications, like I know so much and yet so little at the same time. And so what we decided was, okay, we'll just like find the one story I really need to know more about. Like finding that one question is really important to me, like more than like knowing everything, just finding the one question, like the debt ceiling, just because I felt like I kept every day I logged on to the Drudge Report and every day it was some bananas headline that was scaring me about the debt ceiling. It was like the U.S. Mint gets ready to mint the trillion dollar coin, you know, and, you know, the Department of Defense is warning about the de- And I was like, we got to do something on this. We got to explain. And so then you get to get into the fact that the U.S. stands out because it is one of the few countries with a debt ceiling. And like, huh, why is that? And I think that's really, really interesting to be able to go a little bit deeper like that. Totally. And saving us from the way these things are covered, which is, I can't... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.